see. Okay, okay, all right. Big man, you want to make some big bucks, huh? Let's see how tough you are. You know something about cocaine? Dígame. What you kidding me or what, man? There's a bunch of UK cats coming in Friday. New guys. They said they got two keys for us for openers. Pure Coke, Hotel Miami Beach. I want you to go over there. And if it's what they say it is, you pay them, you bring it back. You can do that, you make five grand. Mira the bodegas. Noon Friday, you get to buy money then. Oh, and Chico, if anything happens to Breaking Adams, e pobrecito. Chris and Summit are gonna stick your heads up your asses faster than a rabbit gets fucked. From Breaking Atoms comes a brand new original podcast series celebrating the 25th anniversary of Jay-Z's debut album, Reasonable Doubt. In this first episode, we travel back in time to a pre-gentrified Brooklyn, New York and explore Jay's early musical roots. We'll also learn about how he came to a fork in the road and had to choose between the rap game and the crack game even with all their similarities and pitfalls. We'll also learn about when and how he met his future business partners, Damon Dane Dash and Kareem Bigsberg, and starting Rockefeller Records. This is Brooklyn's Finest. On Tuesday, the 25th of June, 1996, Jay-Z released his very first album, Reasonable Doubt, which up until that point had taken him his whole life to make. 1996 was the final year of the second golden era, which began in 1992. This was a time in hip hop where the sounds and styles were rich and varied. Many impactful and influential albums were released during this year, including Bow Down by Westside Connection, Dr. Octagon by Cool Keith, AT Aliens by Outkast, and Nocturnal by Helter Skelter, which was released the week before Reasonable Doubt dropped. A week later, it was written by Nas and Stakes is High by De La Soul were both released on the same day. But it all began in 1985. A young Jay-Z was in a group called High Potent who released a song called HP Gets Busy. I'm on the joint and I will The track was recorded by Tom Webber at Ralston Recording Studio on Fulton Street in Brooklyn and released through Get Live Records. One member of the group was a hip-hop legend, Jazzo. He explains how the crew initially came together. In 1985, Jay-Z, myself, two brothers, Almond Joy and EZLD, we did a song called HP Gets Busy. That was when people first really heard like the triplet style of rhyming. Jay-Z was like, yo, you know, you should do that more. And he's the first one who actually coined the originators, like we the originators of this thing. And rightfully so, because even though I was the first one to do it, he actually coined it, you know. And I mean, we talking about 80, 86. We had a mission and the mission was to make great music, to continue putting out the music that we put in the street that didn't get that type of, you know, because there were no deals involved or like the only other person who had a major record deal up until that time was myself. Before Jazz's deal, he was revered as the nicest MC in the Marcy Projects. After dropping out of college, he came home to the news that there was a new kid on the block who could also rock some rapping rhymes. Through a mutual friend, a battle was set up to see who could take the crown. It was Big Jazz versus Shawnee D who later became known as Jay-Z. 
First, let me give credit to a brother who everybody thought was my actual physical brother, Clyde, who is also known as Nike. I came home from college and not bragging, but I was already a, a legend in the street as far as the rhyme game. So when I came back to Brooklyn and Nike found out, Nike got into a discussion with somebody else around his weight. So the subject was, you know, who's the best in, in Marcy? And then, you know, somebody's like, yo, it's this young kid, Shawnee D. Yo, he nicer than everybody. And then, you know, Nike, he was like my number one advocate. And he was like, yo, Jazz is back home and ain't nobody better than Jazz. He was like, yo, let's get them together. So, you know, people, they so rah-rah, so everything is supposed to be like a battle or a fight. You know what I'm saying? We met in the lane on my side. We, we, we stood there and he introduced us. As we got into it, it didn't, it wasn't a battle. It didn't turn out to be a battle because nobody, I, I, me, I didn't care. And Jay, he was more of a strategist with it. And he was like, hmm, let him rhyme first. So I rhymed and then he rhymed and I was thoroughly impressed. And he was as well. It was at that point, it was like, nah, this ain't a battle. This is a union. You know what I'm saying? Because he was the first person that I ever heard that was, you know, younger than me that sounded not necessarily like me, but very similar. And his his cadence, his vocal projection, his ability, whether it be natural or learned, to control his breathing a certain way. I was like, yo, this dude, he has it. The relationship between Jazz and Jay flourished and they became rhyme partners. Early on, Jazz would create beats for Jay to rhyme over and the two would go all over Brooklyn, solidifying their reputations as microphone fiends with a drum machine. We became rhyme partners because I was like, whatever you don't know, I'm here to show you. And the, the other dimension that I brought to the table is the fact that, you know, I, I dabbled around with the keyboards, drum programming. That aspect is what helped us a lot in our camaraderie and our professionalism. I make a beat and then we make a song and we write routines. And, you know, when we came outside, they knew it was on. And we brought a new dimension to the whole, you know, block party type of situation because we would bring a beatbox with us and instead of the DJ spinning, you know, a break beat or something, we just come with our own little program beat and do our little ad libs. I hand him the, the drum machine and he do the beat. When we switch up, we switch the mic and the drum machine at the same time. It was, it was ridiculous. And we were a commodity that everybody was talking about us because we were doing things that nobody else was doing at the time. Any semblance of it was going on uptown. None of that was going on in Brooklyn. Fast forward to 1989. Jazzo signed a recording contract with EMI and traveled to London to record his album, Word to the Jazz. He brought Jay-Z and his DJ Irv Gotti along for the trip. Jazz explains their daily operation during their time in the UK. I mean, we had a routine, you know, and we built it based upon therapeutic needs, you know, being so far away from home. We were furnished with everything we needed. We were foolish. You know, we ran up the phone bill, ridiculous. We shopped. There was a Y near where we were staying, you know, at the, at the flat. We went there six days out of the week, you know, and we started playing basketball. We, we met some guys and we were playing ball with them and we lifted weights real light. But, we, you know, we played a lot of ball, played a lot of half court. And this was before um, the session. 
that's how we were. Like everything was just fun and games. It was jokes. It was a great experience. It just really tripped me out. I, I was on like I never saw that money up until that time. None of us did. Word to the Jazz was recorded at Battery Studios in Northwest London and features Jay on the song Hawaiian Sophie. Way on a wild tip, on a macho trip, that ain't hip. Look to my partner Jay, yeah I saw it. Shrugged the shoulder said, hey, I can't call it. I said I think she should just up and go free, then I can be with the girl next soap. According to the album liner notes, Jay-Z appeared courtesy of Josh Productions. Who was that? Jazzo has the answer. Josh Production, it was a production slash publishing company of the people who were actually managing me at the time. And I knew it was a conflict of interest, but my deal was so sweet. I was like, you know, let's go with it and I'll keep my eyes open. You know what I'm saying? Nothing funny went down. Uh, an individual named Stan Poses was... Um, my manager back then. In his autobiography, Decoded, Jay reflected on his experience in London. He said, Jazz invited me for the ride. Inside, I was doing backflips. But when I told my crew, they didn't share my excitement. They thought I was bugging for leaving the block at a time when we were doing so well. But it didn't matter to me. Jazz's money was real. I respected that. The life experience he gained on this trip to London expanded Jay-Z's worldview and made him believe he could be successful as a rapper. Enter. DJ Clark Kent, also known as God's favorite DJ. He recalls meeting Jay-Z for the first time and trying to sign Jazz, Jay and Source Money to record deals on his second day as A&R at Atlantic Records. First time I heard him rap, I was at Fresh Gordon's house. Jazzo was there and I was listening. I was like, I already knew who Jazz was because he was my boy. And I was like, yo, who's that? Because he, he was flowing in and out with him on this this track and I was he was like oh that's my boy Jay from Mossy and I was like nah you gotta introduce me to this guy I was like what you need to know is at that point I thought Jazz was the best MC I'd ever heard and and like literally he to me is still one of the best MCs ever so I'm like okay you gotta introduce me to you because he told me to come to Mossy and he introduced me to him and he rapped in front of me and I was just like, this guy is it. So when I got my first A&R job with Atlantic Records, well, my, I would say first A&R, that was the first real A&R, but was that, was that Atlantic? And like the second day I was like, I want to sign Jazz and Jay-Z. So I find Jazz. He was like, I don't know where Jay is. I'll try to find him. I'm like, okay, cool, cool. He's trying to find him, trying to find him. I'm trying to find him. The only person who could find him was Fade from the shirt kings. He was like, yo, I heard you looking for Jay. I'm like, yes, you know where he's at? He was like, I'm gonna put you on the phone with him. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> so he calls this girl and then tells the girl, put Jay on the phone. And Jay's on the phone. I'm like, yo, you, you, well, I don't care where you at, but you gotta come to New York. We gotta get this record deal. I gotta give you a jazz, gotta do a record deal. He was like, man, I don't care about that. And I was like, yeah, you have to care about this. You know, he really didn't. Him and Jazz came to my office and then they were like, yeah, and, and Sauce too. And I was like, what? He was like, yeah, Sauce Money too. I was like, uh. and then I heard Sauce Rhyme and I was, I was like, oh yeah, okay, I get that. Jay-Z and Dame Dash were introduced to each other by DJ Clark Kent, who would often talk about the Brooklyn MC around Dame. The Best Out member thought Big L, a member of the DITC crew, was the most skilled MC. That is, until he met Jay-Z for the first time. So when I introduce him, he's just like, oh, no, nah, he's better than me. Yeah, 
but thing that really bugged Dame out about him is that when he saw him, he was just like, yo, wait a minute, he's a Brooklyn nigga, he's just like me. And I'm like, dog, you're not the only one like that. You know what I'm saying? I'm older than all of them. So I would always be like, yo, if you look at me in a certain way, why do you think I'm going to fuck with somebody corny? Like, what does that happen? How does that make sense? Dame Dash, an entrepreneur from Harlem, was looking for artists to manage. Well, you know, I, I started a group called Original Flavor. That's Ski Beats, uh, a rapper and producer from Original Flavor. He explains getting his demo into the hands of Clark, who eventually introduced him to Dame and his cousin, Darian Dash. I knew Clark Kent. And he said, hey, if you're ever in New York, look me up. It was the perfect time because he was like A&R at Atlantic Records. So I called him up. I said, hey, man, I got a demo tape. Got a new group called Original Flavor. I want to bring it up there. So I took it to Atlantic Records. He wasn't able to see me personally, so I had to leave my CD or my tape with the actual receptionist. And I was kind of hesitant about that because I didn't know she was going to actually get it to him. But she did. He called me back like a week later, said that, you know, Atlantic Records loved the group and they wanted to sign us. And so we went back to Atlantic. And when I walked into the office and Clark was like, yo, I want you to meet Dame Dash and Darian Dash. They like your music and they want to manage you. And I'm like, you know, I'm young, just got a record deal. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. You know what I mean? And that's how I met Dame. After signing to Atlantic Records and now being managed by Dash Entertainment, Original Flavor began working on their first album, This Is How It Is, which was released in 1992. They quickly followed up with their second and final album, Beyond Flavor, in 1994. Ski recalls meeting Jay for the first time as part of the recording process. Clark brings Jay around, lets, you know, Dame hear Jay, let everybody hear Jay. And I'm like, yo, this kid is like the best rap I've ever heard in my life. Yo. We need to get him on one of our songs. So, you know, it made sense. You know, he was down with us now. Now Jay-Z's managed by Dane. We're managed by Dane. And so we put Jay on the Can I Get Open song. Yo, G, can I get open? You know it. Hey, G, can I get open? You know it. Hey, y'all, can I get open? You know it. You want to fly style? Jay's about to show it. Well, can I? It's never a question of how, but when I rip it, will I quit it? Forget it. Still, I always point whenever I hit it. Abdul Malik Abbott, a video editor at the time, was hired to direct the visual for Original Flavor's single All That, which featured a cameo appearance by Jay-Z. There was also an incident involving Jay-Z's Pathfinder. Luckily, nobody was hurt. Michelle Webb, who worked at Atlantic Records, she was a video commissioner for a bunch of artists over there, and Damon Dash was was managing original flavor. So I did a video called All That. So she was like, yo, this is Kat. She didn't say yo, but she said, this is Kat, Damon Dash. He's, he's from Harlem. You're from Harlem. You know, he's a little arrogant. If you can deal with it, I'm introduced you to him. And that's how, that was the connection. And um, wrote a treatment and ended up doing the video for All That. During that video shoot, there was this tall guy who had this Pathfinder. He let us use his Pathfinder in the video. It was, it was Jay-Z. Someone backed up into the Pathfinder and, and, and damaged it. And he was cool about it. We were shooting outside. We were shooting at a bar. And then someone from the bar comes to me and is like, this guy who keeps wanting to buy a bottle of champagne. And we're not open, so we can't legally sell it. Can you come talk to him? And I was like, oh, my God, I got to deal with some knucklehead from Brooklyn. But I went and said, hey, you can't buy a bottle of champagne because it's, it's uh bar's not open. They can't legally sell it. And he was like, all right, cool. It was no problem. So if you saw the all of that video, he's like barely in it. He's just in the corner somewhere. And that's that was the initial introduction. After wrapping up the all that video, Abdul met Dame by chance in downtown New York, 
Dame asked Abdul if he would be up for directing a video for Jay. Abdul agreed and got to work on a clip for the Clark Kent produced, I Can't Get With That. I think a couple months later, the video came out and it actually did pretty well. And I just happened to run into Damon downtown New York. And he was like, yeah, I'm starting this record label. And he didn't even have a name for the record label at the time. He's like, I want to do a video for, for my partner, Jay-Z. You want to do it? We got a certain amount of money. Wasn't a lot at all. And I was like, sure, let's do it. And that was the connection. It was literally just two people passing in one afternoon decided to, to link up and, and, and make history. That was the first one. That was before Rockefeller even launched from Jazzo to Ski to, to Clark Kent. Like everybody made a cameo in that video. So we shot that over at Marcy Projects. That video really was just for a local station, Video Music Box. He was Jay-Z, but he didn't really have his persona built yet. He was learning it. So he was also learning how to move his hands and how to how to rap to this part. And so it was it was a learning process for both of us. He was a professional who was interested in learning the business. He wasn't off smoking weed and, and getting high. He was there, present. Clark Kent, God's favorite DJ. That's Star Adams, historian and journalist. He explains how Clark Kent leverages A&R skills to feature Jay-Z on a number of songs and build up his buzz. Clark Kent gets a job at Atlantic as an A&R. If he believes in you, because he has an ear, if he said, this guy, you better listen. If you go through Discogs and you look at all the remixes or the albums he oversaw during that stretch at Atlantic, including like East West, At Cole, Atlantic Street, right? And you look at all the remixes, all the stuff he did. Do you know how many songs did he put Jay-Z on uncredited? But he paid him. But it was because he believed in him. He knew putting Jay on these joints, putting Jay on these joints. There was a slew of records that Jay was credited and uncredited for during Clark's time at Atlantic Records. These include My Kind of Girl by Rude Boys, the remix to SWV's You're the One, and Clark's own remix of Good Thing by Glenn Jones. We were rooting for Jay-Z. We were rooting for him on Show and Prove. Show and Prove. Uh, one, checking it, two, checking it, three, check out the J, check out the A, check out the Y, check out the Z. Hi, G. I'm breaking MCs up like EPMD. And these nuts, if your rappers trying to see me, I'm up wild with style to doubt. I'm ribbing and running 100 miles, I'm well in doubt. Baby, like, think about how many guest appearances he, he did. Time to build. Like, Jay-Z was everywhere for years and we heard about the battles we didn't we weren't around for them i was in boston they, they were happening in new york but you knew about you know dmx the great dmx and jay-z and pop quality all these people that were around you know on the circuit battling raggedy man there were so many people in the circuit who are like hot sauce money there were days when big daddy Kane would go on tour and he would have Positive K, Sauce Money, and Jay-Z with him. Because Big Daddy Kane was the hot guy, but he believed in these dudes. And there was a lot of people passing people around like, yo, can you help him out? Can you help him out? Can you help him out? And Jay-Z was one of the dudes that everybody knew that had it. But the person who kept pushing it, pushing it, and believed against believing, even when everybody told them no, was Clark Kent. Over many years, DJ Clark Kent tried to convince Jay to fully dedicate himself to making music and record an album. He even went as far as to build a studio in his home 
because he wanted Jay to have the space where he could be creative and productive. I get hired to do a remix. Usually I would I would do 24-hour studio blocks to do remixes. I would use 12 hours of the studio time for the remix, get it done, and then start recording Jay and Jack, Jay and Saw, or Jay really in those sessions. Sometimes put them on the remix or whatever. Then I, I started to feel like what I was doing was wrong to the companies that were paying. So I built a studio in my house to record Jay-Z. Like literally put a studio in the house just to record him. So, you know, those are the, the beginnings of what you're hearing. DJ Clark Kent had floated the idea of forming a group with Jay, Jazz, and another formidable rhyme sayer, Source Money, called The Hard Pack. This is before introducing them to, to Damon and all that. I was just like, well, I'm going to make some songs with them. And we had a group. We were called The Hard Pack. Clark was an integral part. He did quite a few productions. I did three, maybe four. Ski did about four, maybe five. After a brief stint, the music iteration of The Hard Pack was disbanded as a group. The Hard Pack was the name of DJ Clark Kent's early crew. One of the original members of The Hard Pack was Mark Pitts, who went on to manage Biggie Smalls and is currently president of RCA Records. There wasn't a lot of songs with all three of them. It, it more was like a project where they were all, all over songs. You know what I'm saying? So like there's more songs with Jay and Sauce than there are with Jazz and whomever. You know what I mean? Hard Pack was me, Sean Juan, my little brother, Mark Pitts, and Big Raj, who was like my little brother. And Raj used to be Jay's tour DJ. After we made a decision to not go ahead with the group, Dame had Clark to start producing more and more music for, for Jay. It's crazy, like, I'ma mention a song, I mean, I don't know how feasible it is for anybody to hear it. Jay had a song that Clark produced called 95 South. One of my favorite joints. And I mean, when I say one of my favorite joints, I'm saying one of my favorite joints ever, released or non-released. Prophecy and Jay-Z go hand in hand. DJ Clark Kent reveals there were two versions of 95 South. And there was one particular song that convinced Kareem Biggs-Burke that Jay-Z was the one. That song was called Got To Reach The Top, a song that Dame Dash really wanted on the album. There's two versions of 95 South. And you've only, you've, you might have heard one. It was the most honest of what he was doing at the time. You know what I mean? And the second version, the reason why it's a different version to me, my answer would be is because it just felt better. But they're two totally sets, different sets of rhymes. Make way for men wide of LA because it's time to get the hustle on. It, it spoke to everything that we were into. And um, it's funny because it, only one song made Biggs say, okay, fuck it, I'm going to do this. When he heard Gotta Reach the Top, he was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm in. 
competition is curtains. I scheme like a queen. Keep brothers awake like Tony's. When you sleep, I dream. Team right, brothers better sleep light. Cause I keep saying I'm number one. So yeah, sleep tight. I put them out. Like the wood in the house, things are looking up, so brothers better be looking up. I'm closing the gap like Heidi, my shit's selling more than Shay White. The prophetic records were 95 South and Gotta Reach the Top because everything came true. It, it's crazy because if you listen to Gotta Reach the Top, it has, it has the one thing that when you get it from Jay, it sticks with you. The sound of it has a soul. About 10 years ago, DJ Clark Kent gifted all the unreleased music from the Reasonable Doubt era to Jay as a Christmas gift. Part of the rhymes from one of those songs appeared on a Missy Elliott record. The only people, the only people who have all of the songs are me and Jay. Because I, I gifted it to him like 10 years ago as a Christmas gift. There was a song called What's in the Name where he took parts of it and use it on a Missy Elliott record. He called me one day. He was like, yo, what's the rhymes on? What's in the name? Because he knew I could recite all of his rhymes back to him. And um, I was like, I'm going to do better. I'm going to just give you a record. And I gave him it. And it, parts of it became on this uh, song she, he did with Missy Elliott. While we may not get to hear the two versions of 95 South and the other unreleased music recorded during that time, it was abundantly clear that the path to what would eventually become reasonable doubt had been laid. DJ Clark Kent, Ski and Jazz all brought their best to the table and rallied around Jay. One of the earliest fruits of the support system was In My Lifetime, a song produced by Ski. And then and the first record I produced for him was the In My Lifetime. This song here. Give him that gritty, kind of edgy joint. Just, you know, just getting my footing, finding my way into, you know, his into his world with the music. Efforts to get Jay signed to a major label were rebuffed by several music executives. Dame, Biggs and Jay decided to set up their own label called Rockefeller Records, as named by original flavor MC, Tone Hooker. In My Lifetime was independently released by the trio in 1994. They then searched for wider distribution and found a home at Patrick Moxley's Payday Records, who reissued In My Lifetime in 1995, including a remix of the title track produced by Jazz. I was frequenting Clark Kent's crib because he had all the equipment. If I couldn't make it out to D&D, I would go to Clark's house. So after that, Clark and I had built a rapport every time we see each other. Like he would say, all right, I know you got something. Let me hear something. And he, you know, he'd make the faces, you know, that we made usually on each other. You know, the frowns, like, oh. <laughs> and um, in my lifetime, the remix, we were at Sauce Money shoot. Jay and I was sitting in his truck and he was like, Clark said, you got some things and whoop, whoop, whoop. So I played a couple of beats. <laughs> He was like, yeah, he must be talking about this one because I want it. And it became, in my lifetime, the big jazz remix. What's the it's very spiritual. In order to appreciate it, you have to look back and realize how 
pivotal and iconic that whole scenario is. He gave you a picture that only few artists that I've heard in my whole career can really give to you. What we brought to the world was our view, not as like, you know, the gritty coming from nothing. We felt like people knew that story. We're going to tell the story part two of that when the flip came and when it became continuous and when we began to enterprise. Jay was passionate about using storytelling as a thread to stitch together his visuals and music. And In My Lifetime is a great example of that. Abdul-Malik Abbott breaks down how a strong narrative arc played a part in his video treatments from location to character development in all of his videos for Jay-Z during this period. I think it was just me and Damon had a conversation over the phone like, well, what are we going to do with this video? I was like, we don't really want to, because if you remember a lot of hip hop videos, very cold. And, you know, when they first started out, they always have hip hop artists in an abandoned building or behind a gate and there's a barrel on fire or something like that. It's like, we're not trying to do that. So let's build this persona of this, this baller who's not being too flashy, but you see the flash. It was a quick conversation and then it just snowballed and Damon was like, okay, so we're going to, we got people down in St. Thomas. So we're going to go and we're going to take some pictures and some videos. So they went, scouted it out. So they knew people who were balling out in St. Thomas. I had a small crew. It was like maybe six of us. Everybody else was flown in by Rockefeller. All those people sitting around were flown in. But in the video, you kind of see he's trying to do deals on the phone. And like, there's always like a somewhat underlying business side of, of everything he does. So we always were trying to tell stories. We started to do that at the end of In My Lifetime Remix. I was at the end where we, we sort of, we stopped Jay coming out of the, out of the restaurant and arrest him. We were sort of doing the New York undercover vibe. And then we had shot the uh, remix video at this real mafioso Italian restaurant in, in Brooklyn. So, we, you know, the, everything was always there. It wasn't a lot of faking it. You know what I mean? The song and video for In My Lifetime are examples of the lavish and luxurious mafioso motif that would become a part of the Reasonable Doubt presentation. Other albums of the time that were inspired by the organized crime approach were 456 by Cool G Rap, only Built for Cuban Links by Raekwon and Do or Die by AZ. Ski explains how he and Clark began working on Reasonable Doubt without really knowing it at first. Somewhere down the road, Original Flavor had got dropped from Atlantic Records and I wasn't really concerned about being a rapper anymore because I got the best rapper in the world, you know, coming to my crib recording with me. So, you know, I'm making beats, not knowing all that time, you know, we're working on the, the skeleton to Reasonable Doubt. Clark is making music. I'm making music, you know, and now we're getting this body of work. You know, I'm hearing what Clark is doing. It's incredible. He's painting the picture. He's setting everything up. The first song I heard that he did for Jay, because remember, Jay used to rap with the real fast style, the wiggity wiggity. When Jay flipped it and started, you know, getting into the whole, you know, the street thing, the hustler mode, the first song I heard was um, Cashman Thoughts. And I was like, yo. And what he was saying on it, and that just painted the whole picture for me. I'm like, oh, I know what he needs. And then that's when I started, you know, digging into my bag and, you know, coming up with joints for him. On episode two of Brooklyn's Finest, we'll dive even deeper into the creative process of Reasonable Doubt, including how songs were put together, recording tools and techniques, the maverick-like business acumen of Damon Biggs, and highlighting other key players from the Rockefeller squad. Tune in next time. 
Brooklyn's finest, The Making of Reasonable Doubt by Jay-Z. It's a Breaking Atoms production. This series is produced by Summit Sharma and Christopher Mitchell, and it's mixed and mastered by Dave Walker. To stay in the loop and receive episodes as soon as they drop, follow and subscribe to Breaking Atoms, or search for Breaking Atoms wherever you listen to podcasts.